If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. Wherever you look there seem to be strong leaders almost normalizing the notion of strong leadership. Trump, Xi Jinping, Duterte, Urban, Erdogan. The list of strong leaders seems to go on and on and on. But what is it to be a strong leader? And what does this mean for the future of leadership in politics today? It's curious, I find, that at this point in history we should be again enthralled to big political personalities instead of policy. From Donald Trump to Nigel Farage, this week our speakers look at the growth of the cult of personality within democracies as much as autocracies. Would voting on policies be a more rational pursuit? Could technology provide a way for us to create alternatives to these top-down hierarchies? Or does this mean that freedom is no longer as important to us in politics? What then is the future of leadership in the age of Trump? To tackle this question, we are joined by outspoken Labour MP Jess Phillips, Guardian journalist and China expert Tanya Brannigan, author of Democracy Squared, John Barnes, and Professor of History and Politics at Oxford University, Rana Mitter. As ever, please let us know what you thought of this week's episode. Make sure you subscribe and give us a rating as this helps other people find our podcast. Back now to Isabel Hilton, who hosts this week's episode. So uh, what I'm hoping we'll explore in this discussion is whether there are other ways at this point of approaching and viewing politics and and choosing how we're governed. So Jess, start off. Policies or personalities? I think it is 
I mean, terribly political answer and not very outspoken, I'm afraid to say, is that you need a mixture of both. And to me, I suppose, looking at the idea of good leadership, it, it inevitably comes with reasonable policies that come from the people they aim to serve, or at least it should come from the people they aim to serve. My concern at the moment, aside from all of the horrors that you have just uh, outlined in global leadership, mm -hmm. is the idea of strength. I mean, for a start off, it's an incredibly masculine idea of strength. <laughs> I don't recognise Trump to be a strong man, to be perfectly honest. I recognise him to be weak, weak-willed, easily led. Um, and I actually just think his policy is made up by the last person he spoke to that day. Um, that's the last how man it, who sat on him. Right? Yeah, that's it. It's just like, if you leave the room last, you're the one who's got the ideas. That's the next executive order. Um, so I think that the idea of strength is often just about masculine strength and I, I don't particularly think that that is good leadership. The idea that we should vote for policies. Now, I suppose people also describe me as being a centrist. I am not a centrist. Uh, I am far more left-wing uh, than that and also that I'm a moderate. I am not a moderate. I am a radical in actual fact is how I like to view myself. But the idea, the sort of centrist idea and the, the Macron uh, s s sort of style of leadership, or I was about to say Louis Theroux, that's not his name. What's his name in Canada? <laughs> that's it, Trudeau. <laughs> anyway, forgot his name. Well, I've Louis Theroux might think about it. I've got his face in my head, know. worry not. Um, and the rest of him. Um, <laughs> but um, that idea that you are gaining your insight from the people that you serve is a style of leadership that I think is, to me, much, much more appealing, although I think largely is as false as the strength. I don't think that people just want to vote for policies, however. I don't think... In fact, I've never... I knocked 21,000 doors during the last Snap General election and I met one person who'd read any manifesto. I had, didn't meet a single person who actually knew anything other than the headline policies of uh, free university fees for everybody from the Labour Party and charging you to die from the Conservative <laughs> Party, which admittedly did fall down on one side in favour, uh, hence my majority. Um, <laughs> however... Maybe you don't want them to know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the idea that people sit and think about policy is for the birds, in my experience, of my constituents. Actually, personality genuinely matters much, much more to the general public than we give credit for. And therefore, I think that really, actually, I, I don't seek a world where policy is the thing that everybody cares about. Okay. I, I just want to see a world where the people who people follow aren't so batshit okay. crazy. We'll, <laughs> we'll come back to <laughs> yeah, the question yeah. of personality. So, so disembodied policies, John, don't have any traction at all. So the, the question was, uh, should we dream of a politics where we vote for policies, not individuals? Yes, in short. In longer, it's more nuanced, um, of course. I think we should definitely not be thinking that democracy equals voting for a person. And as much that people are often batshit crazy, <laughs> it makes very little sense to vote for a person. I think we've just seen like beaut beautiful um, examples of that, one after the other. I think we should be seeking, we should be dreaming of a form of democracy that's deeper, that's more democratic. 
and that wasn't possible previously. So previously it was only possible to vote for a person or a party or an ideology or a, and to go through hierarchy because pen and paper was the only technology that we had to vote. So for everyone to go to the ballot box and vote for something very specific every two weeks would require too many trees. Um, it, it, would, it, would, it would be too, too elaborate a process. Should we vote for policy? I agree, I think that's, that's equally absurd. Like if I was asked to vote on a very specific policy every, every few weeks, I mean, I, I, I can't see that I'd find that interesting. I'd rather watch EastEnders <laughs> than, than be doing that. But there are other alternatives. The, the question is not broad enough. There are other alternatives than voting for individuals or policies. Um, and there's examples of them around the world using blockchain, using AI to genuinely ask people what their will is and then do that. Like, that's, that's the most simplest definition of what democracy is. It's asking people what they want as a future. That's not to say what law they want passed. That's a stupid question. Asking in or out or left or blue is, is a dumb question. But asking what kind of future do you want and then the role of the leader or the politician to make that happen in law, in policy, is something that I think for the first time is possible. So, th so the way I see it is that democracy has been great, like it correlates with every form of progress you can think of, particularly peace. But it's we've been beta testing this idea for about 150 years, not much longer. It's a very new thing. Uh, and now's the first time we have the technology to actually have democracy. And so I'd like to see a conversation that moves, like this one, that moves from who's right, like who's correct on, because the, the question typically is, before asking the question, I have my answer, and my answer is an ideology from the left or the right. I'd like to see us use technology to ask people what they want and then achieve that, and I think that's possible now where it wasn't, it wasn't possible before. So we should be seeking these alternatives, which exist in, in small, small pockets around the world. Tanya. Well, bear with me, because I'm going to talk about a politics where very few people get to vote for anything at all. I hasten to add it's not the politics I dream of, and hopefully you don't either, but it is part of Xi Jinping's China dream. Um, and I think it seems to be what a lot of authoritarian leaders around the world are sort of currently thinking about. I mean, Xi Jinping has concentrated power at a truly astonishing rate. At the start of this process, people joked about him being chairman of everything. And now we're in a position where official media have referred to him not only as wise leader, uh, but even as my personal favourite, General Secretary of People's Feelings. <laughs> it's quite an impressive reach, isn't it? So no wonder Trump's feeling a bit jealous. I mean, this is really remarkable because China had prided itself on at least seeming like a sort of technocracy. Um, it, it kind of goes back to the 60s and the age of ideology. Chairman Mao launched the Cultural Revolution, partly from ideological zeal, partly to ex extend and shore up his already incredible power. And it was absolutely devastating, um, especially actually to the political elite. So if you uh, look at Xi Jinping's own history, his father was horribly persecuted, his half-sister died, he spent years toiling away in the countryside. This was not an unusual experience. And they were all so scarred that in the aftermath, they decided that they had to cage power. You just couldn't have one person at the center uh, with this much authority. So they institutionalized power, they collectivized power, uh, they introduced all these things like retirement ages and term limits, which is of course the thing that she has just scrapped for himself. Uh, there was a vote within the party which was something like 3,600 in favor and two very brave souls against. 
So you've gone from the age where you had Hu Jintao, the world's most boring leader, probably deliberately boring, uh, and this generation of red engineers uh, talking about technocracy and the scientific theory of development uh, to an era in which you have Xi Jinping thought, which is a body of theory explicitly identified as being about one man who's in charge indefinitely now. But I think the really key thing to remember is that this is not, as it's sometimes been portrayed, about Xi Jinping single-handedly sort of transforming this system. Uh, the point is that the elite clearly had made this collective decision that the system was not sustainable, that the kind of reforms that were needed, both for China's uh, long-term sustainability and, of course, the, co the sustainability of Communist Party rule, depended on having a more powerful figure at the centre who could force these changes through. Now, I don't think they anticipated uh, quite how far and how fast he'd take that, and I'm pretty sure a lot of them are regretting it now, but I think it was a collective decision. It couldn't have been done by one person. And I think there is also a lot of genuine uh, public enthusiasm for it. There's a lot of people who are very disturbed, but there are also a lot of people who are buying into this, and they say, well, you know, we like this strong leadership. And even in a system where nobody gets to vote, you still need some level of buy-in from the people. So what does this mean for us? I think it shows us that it's really not just about leaders, but about systems and about the people around them, whether that be, as in our case, the general public voting, or it be about a party and a set of institutions. And I think that means that when we think about politics, we have to think about policy, obviously, and we have to think about our leaders and how we choose them, but we also have to think about ourselves. Uh, I hope that doesn't sound sanctimonious because I'm sure that many of you are doing much more than myself, but we have to sort of think about the responsibilities we have. I think that all sort of shows how individuals as much as leaders play their part. Rana, that transition uh, that Tang has just, just outlined from the, the boring Hu Jintao era, where, you know, harmonious society and all that, it was judged to have been weak and ineffective uh, by lots of Chinese commentators, wasn't it? So there was some kind of collective will towards something more high-profile and strong. A will to power, you might uh, say, to use a phrase that was rather Indeed. popular in yes. po some parts of Europe in, in, uh, in, in earlier eras. Mm. Well, I think that's right, but let me use that to, to, to raise another point, if I may. One of the things about Hu Jintao, and I'm sure you all know, but this is the previous Chinese president, the current one, between 2002 and 2012. In Hu Jintao's China was one in which, actually, a lot of things got done that were, in terms of changing China, at least at the popular level, probably quite popular with the general population. I'm thinking here of things like changing the rural pension scheme, electrification of the countryside. They sound like, in a sense, rather worthy and dull things, but they make a great deal of difference at that level. And they were done in that way partly because I think that those particular leaders in China who have no inclination towards liberal democracy at all, nonetheless understood the importance of consensus and trying to create an idea that they had to bring their population along with them. Now, whether that's going to be the case with the current president, Xi Jinping, I think we're going to still have to wait and see. There is quite a lot of evidence that he is someone who is quite popular. And this is true with Putin in Russia as well. When you do opinion poll surveys, which actually are not always entirely rigged, you mean they do actually have a methodology of their, uh, uh, of their own, you find that a lot of people, whether we like it or not, and we probably don't, actually rather like these sorts of, uh, of, of strong leaders. But let me just cap that point with a quick example of something different that comes from what John said, actually. John said, 
amongst other very sensible things. If you had to vote on particular policies, you know, every two weeks, then you know you'd get bored. You'd start watching EastEnders, or um, actually, if you're in China, the show In the Name of the People, which deals with incorruptible anti-corruption czars who basically smash down people's doors and arrest them, uh, usually corrupt officials, while they're in bed with their uh, usually their mistresses and lots of uh, banknotes uh, around. That so sounds excellent. <laughs> we we're going to have a post-Brexit version for the, for, the, for the UK, but there is a there is a country, Switzerland. Switzerland is a country where they have regular referendums at canton level on a whole variety of issues everything from how loud your neighbor's lawnmower might be which is actually one of the things that swiss voters genuinely have voted on the answer is not very loud um <laughs> to bigger and you know actually quite contentious questions about migration immigration and so forth now let me do if i may a very quick audience poll here since we all know who hu jintao and everyone else is someone's going to tell me what year did women get the vote in switzerland 1964 71. 71. Well. Yeah. That's quite late. And one of the reasons for that, or the reason for it, is that the people who had to decide on whether or not women should have the vote were direct <laughs> citizen referendums, which of course could only be voted in by, by men. men. Now, I don't want to say anything about Swiss men. Hey, some of my best friends are Swiss men. I think they are anyway. But there's obviously something going on there that prevented the use of a purely, very directly democratic tactic actually bringing about a just resolution. And my point, which I'll leave you with here, this, is that there was one thing that was lacking. They voted on policies. They still do in Switzerland. One thing they don't have is leadership. Okay, uh, so uh, I, d I, d I just want to sort of go back to that question of whether, of when and where leadership might be deemed to be necessary by the population. Because, you know, we, we, we're used to the idea that dictators arise in illiberal uh, uh, political systems, that they come to, to, to power by force in some way. But actually what we're seeing are people electing people who present themselves as strong leaders and then go on to change constitutions and consolidate their power and appear not to wish to go. So, John, you know, there's clearly an appetite for this. Mm. And, and uh, why do you think there's an appetite? What is it? Uh. Um, I mean, I think there's a there's a really narrow understanding of what leadership is. Technically, it's a male thing. It's like it, it's a dude who's who's white and strong at the front of the room. It, it's like me right now telling you that I'm right, right? That's that's leadership in in the old-fashioned way, um, and that's like utter nonsense. There's a million other ways to to lead, and the internet has changed that because for the first time, the notion of top-down hierarchy has alternatives. So my job on a day-to-day -day basis is to help companies be run by their people without any hierarchy. And what we see is that they work faster, more efficiently, they're cheaper to run, they're more innovative. Um, and it's an Switzerland's a good example, actually, because Switzerland's the least volatile country you'll know of. And the reason is because when you spread bets over lots of decisions over years and years, there's no single point of failure. If you put all your money on red or black, or red or blue in this case, every five years, that would be a that would be a really stupid way to invest your money in a single leader in like Trump or, or Hillary. Could I just challenge you a bit on that? Yeah. Because because you know a democratically run company is one thing yeah. because you're assumed to have a kind of unity of purpose. But yeah. politics is about balancing lots of conflicting Absolutely. claims and needs and and desires yeah. and 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 perhaps a little more complicated then. And shouldn't um, isn't doesn't isn't there a need for somebody to to prioritize those? So no, I. I don't think so, personally. I think so. I think there is a role for leadership. I just think it's a different role. So, if you were to run, let's say we run a every two weeks, we take a different issue, right? We have the environment, and I propose to you four different futures that are possible. Um, and a group of researchers, um, diverse researchers, 
come together with those different possibilities um, and that we vote that you choose this direction. So I'm not choosing the policy, I'm choosing this direction. Um, and then in a few weeks' time, we have a different issue. We're now on immigration, and we, and we choose a different future for that. You're taking yourself away from the binary left or right. But there will be leaders within those categories. When it comes to food, I might follow a certain thinker. That, that thinker would be my leader. Michael Pollan, for instance, uh, I'm taking food, is a leader that I might follow when it comes to that decision. When it comes to another decision on the environment, I might follow a totally different leader. The notion that I should follow Trump for all my decisions or Hillary for all my decisions for that matter, is far, far too simplistic. So I think the leaders of the future, there'll be two types. There'll be leaders as facilitators whose role is to understand what you all want and to make that happen. Um, I mean, that's just democracy. First of all, that's just the definition of democracy. If I come in and I say, I want you to all know if we should go left or right this year, that's not democracy. Um, the second type of leader will be uh, some sort of uh, influencer in some senses is that I'm, I'm, a, I'm, an I'm an expert in this topic and therefore I'm proposing possibilities and futures for that topic that you may get behind and you may get behind other leaders on other issues. So for instance, if we were now to test a really revolutionary and alternative strategy to solving the opioid epidemic, right? We just say blanket for the whole country this is the solution, that would be incredibly dangerous because there are different parts that will have different solutions and what you're losing is the ability to test. That example I gave did happen in Switzerland. Um, it happened at a regional level and in Zurich, they decided that they would have a very radical approach to solving the heroin problem, which was to give, I think it's methadrone over the counter. Methadone, um, methadone, methadone. we'll do that. As a, as a consequence, that region did something risky, right? But it worked because it worked. It gets it gets more or less adopted across different places. So you can you can have this is how the most like innovative organisations work. They have hundreds of thousands of people. They test in small pockets and then they spread over the country. Okay, so it's dangerous not now. to so test. So can I come dangerous. in on that because there's another parallel example again. Tanya and Isabel in particular might know about well will know about this which is the way in which policy experimentation in China has happened over the last 30, 40 years. Since the end of Chairman Mao, the introducing of what's essentially capitalism, although it's not really called that, socialism with Chinese characteristics, leaders, including Deng Xiaoping and the ones who followed him, would take certain areas of China, so Guangdong province in the south, seen as an area close to Hong Kong, on the coast, relatively innovative in terms of entrepreneurship, abolish taxes or make them very low, let people basically let rip and set up small and medium-sized enterprises, see how it goes. Or up in the northeast where there've been traditionally big coal mining areas, do a mass privatization, throwing thousands of <coughs> people out of work. Nothing like that would ever happen in the UK, obviously, oh. and see if it, if it works or, uh, or not. The difference is, clearly the difference is, these are not decisions being made by any kind of democratic choice. So a question then comes up, if they work, and many people would look at aspects of China and say, millions and millions of people taken out of poverty in 40 years, world's second biggest economy from a standing start, geopolitical power that dominates you know, large parts of Asia and the rest of the world. What's not to like? Is that a legitimate position in this context? I think it depends if you think freedom's important. <laughs> but people don't well, necessarily think it is. Yeah. So some people is important. Yeah. The freedom to eat. Yeah, also I mean this is, is what this important. is yeah. I in mean the UK as well, I think you'd be surprised how little people want their opinion asked of them. Mm. People were annoyed at the snap general election. That was too soon. People were like literally like, Can you not get on with your job? Why are you asking my opinion every fifteen seconds? People about Brexit, the lack of leadership over Brexit is the thing 
it nobody talks about brexit in in on the doors outside of london anymore nobody in my constituency has mentioned brexit to me for at least a year and uh, since the referendum nobody mentioned it and the reason that they're not interested is because they think that politicians should go away and sort it out mm. but there but brexit's an interesting case and it's a, I, I mean the question of personality and the role it plays in politics yeah. is a very key one. There was one big personality Farage, in that yeah. whole debate. Uh, he's, he's disappeared. Now, whether you like that personality or not, I mean, he, for the time being, he's, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's disappeared. And then on the other side, there was no personality who kind of embodied the spirit of, you know, remain or what, whatever, the good things yeah. about Europe or any of that. So, so what does that tell us about the function of personality as opposed to the biggest decision this country had to make? And, and, and it, we, there was a lot of information, but people didn't a really read it. Well, yes, but what's what that too? What it tells yeah. us is that people in the UK like the personality politics that isn't and I'm not sure that was always the case and I don't know whether there mm. has been a global shift with actually propaganda wars that we haven't seen for a long time mm. in the UK became completely manifest in our politics now but personality definitely definitely matters to British people but does There's it matter no too to much uh, is it a bad thing um I mean, that entirely depends on whether you worry about what you end up with. We would all say it mattered that Farage, Farage's personality got out there. We, we would say, yes, we don't like it when that personality is the one that people go for. But then it's beholden on the others to be a bit better in my opinion, and I think that there is a complete and utter lack and vacuum of political leadership in the UK at the moment, um, and a real lack of bravery and what I would consider to be actual strength that has meant that for so many people's conversations and this lack of feedback that, that you're talking about, was allowed to find voice in, a, in an unstable personality, um, and that is, what we should know from Farage, what we should know from Thatcher, is that people do, w w working class communities loved Thatcher and she was awful for them. And what we should know is that they do like that and we should have to, we should have to perform to that. I mean, so I think yeah, quite a lot of it, it really is actually about not what leaders do so much as what, what they, they say, say and how they say Definitely. it, how they convey that message. I mean, it wasn't really, Farage in himself as the way he sort of encapsulated that bizarrely managing to sell themselves as a sort of anti-establishment narrative. You know, you have not been served by your leadership. And clearly there was an underlying truth there, which was that politics hasn't served, democratic politics hasn't served a lot of people in this country very well. Um, I think it also shows incidentally that if you are going to vote on policy, you should do it really regularly because otherwise when you have one vote, it becomes it comes to stand for everything that is wrong yeah. with your current political yeah, system. So, true. you know, do it regularly or not at all. Um, not at all. But I, I mean, I think there is a sort of hunger for narrative. Um, and, and that's partly the thing about Xi Jinping that in fact, as, as Rana said, you know, um, the last leadership did some really quite remarkable things in terms of rolling out this sort of embryonic welfare state at speed, albeit not as much as they needed to do, but they did achieve a lot and they didn't get much credit for it, but they just didn't really manage to sell it. And with Xi Jinping, you know, he talks about the China dream and this new era. Um, 
and a lot of people really respond to that. They have a sort of a sense of purpose, you know, as as the years in which sort of uh, China was getting so much better off every year um, are sort of fall into the past. I mean, China's sort of looking for a new narrative, and for a lot of people, so far, that seems to be it. But there's, a, the there's a paradox in the in the personalization of politics, isn't there? Because you know, w one thing that that Trump's followers seem to say is that he's he has a kind of authenticity now you know if you take apart you know trump as a as a political artifact it's 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 a mountain of lies and and dissimulation some might say some might say xi jinping you could verify that one though you know the, the whole notion of the cult of personality is hugely important in authoritarian systems but that is again a built picture which is very difficult to check you know in you know, in North Korea, where the cult of personality can be seen from the moon, actually we have very little idea of what Kim Jong-un's personality is. So there is a kind of paradox that the appeal is almost, you know, that, oh, we, we, we trust you. We and trust Jeremy you because Corbyn. you're a person. And Jeremy He's Corbyn. He's a posh boy from a public school. Absolutely. And you hear them singing, manner. oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. So how do we, you know, how do we parse this? Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Well, I think the point is to remember, if I may quote that great source of philosophical verity, the Star Wars series, that uh, <laughs> one can use the force for great evil or for great good. Was that that or was that Heidegger? I can't remember. Anyway, one of them, one or the <laughs> others. In other words, let's think about the fact that Barack Obama, to take one example, was someone who was clearly a leader of great standing in terms of his position. He was elected yeah. as president of the United States from a start that made it almost impossible when people imagined, you know, in their visual imaginary, what a president of the United States would look like. It did not look like Barack Obama. O on the trajectory towards becoming the president of the United States during the electoral campaign, Barack Obama led. He led the conversation. Yeah. He led it on race. He led it actually on class and the economy. One of the complaints that's made, and again, hugely reasonable to make it in some senses, is that the United States did not evenly benefit economically during the Obama years. Many people forget that the economy, to quote former President George W. Bush, was a sucker that was about to go down in mm. the summer of 2008. And he saved it, yeah. And a whole variety of things. I think you could say that, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Gordon Brown saved it too, right? Gordon yeah. Brown oh and Barack yeah. got right. together. And uh, <laughs> Hu Jintao was like holding the cocktails. And, you know, they're all, all getting together at the, <laughs> the, 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 G, the G8. But the point is that Barack Obama did not do this by going along and saying, I am this wondrous figure who um, can make everything right if you just you know, give me a blank check to do what I want. He yeah. had to persuade people and bring Absolutely. them along. People tormented him and mocked him by saying, oh, he's playing this sort of Christ figure. You know, he thinks he's this kind of great savior. But he never actually said that. Of course, he wouldn't say that. It's not, he's not that kind of personality. It was a way of avoiding the reality that he had found a mode of leadership that could take a country which has a profoundly difficult relationship with race, put himself center 
uh, at the centre of that discussion and actually lead them to a completely new place. And when Trump is, uh, is, 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 is out of office and the United States has moved on in all sorts of, uh, of directions for good or ill, I think that legacy will actually seem to have been an immensely important historical moment in a way that isn't quite so visible right now because of where we are with leadership politics. But that is leadership too. Hmm. Uh, just something yeah, I want to add is that we, we don't have a choice as to whether we follow personalities or not, just simply because we, we have cognitive biases beyond our control that make us follow brands. You know, people would follow Obama or... Trump on the same basis that you'd follow Coca-Cola or Innocent. This is this is like wonderful branding. I mean, I mean, I'm not kidding. Neu neuro neurologically, that's how it works. Y we just have biases. Um, now, every five years, opening all of our our biggest fragilities as human beings, which we we all have, to being being swept away by m marketing towards one towards your bias towards the fact that you have a need for safety and Trump makes me feel safe right now. So I follow Trump, he makes me feel safe. Or I have a need for hope and so I follow Obama because he makes me feel hopeful. That, that, that is just playing to the fragilities of what it is to be a human being. There are other alternatives to that. You don't have a choice to follow a personality or not. Okay, I feel I have to leap in. I mean, I'd, I'd say firstly, I think it's quite easy. Obviously, one always bears in mind the rise of Trump uh, and other authoritarian leaders who've sort of come to power through the ballot box. So. Uh, but I think we should give sort of voters some credit and it's very yeah. easy to sort of be dismissive. You know, people say, oh, they just vote for the person that they'd most like to have a drink with. I don't think what they're I really don't. saying is, yeah. I want to go down the pub with them. But what they're trying to think about is, you know, within the system, are these people who I broadly feel I can trust? They seem credible in what they say. Um, and do I feel they have some sort of grasp of what my life is like as opposed to just kind of going to the opera with very posh people all the time? Um, but I mean, they don't because they've not asked, right? So that would, that would be based on an assumption that that person knows how your demographic well, it's, I think it's the, s the sense they've got of them. What, what I'm saying is I don't think, I think it's quite easy to sort of condescend to voters. And given that personality does matter, as in the case of Obama, I think it's actually not unreasonable for sort of voters to make those things. And the second thing is that we're irrational about everything. Mm. And, you know, all the science also yeah. shows we're profoundly uh, irrational when we make decisions uh, about things like spending. You know, think of the sunken costs fallacy or... Uh, you look at bread makers, when they started selling bread makers, they didn't sort of sell that many of them. When they introduced more expensive models, they found suddenly sales of bread makers shot up because what previously seemed like an expensive indulgement that seemed practically like a bargain. So, you know, the idea that we'd be somehow more rational about policies than people, I think, is quite odd. But doesn't it also depend a bit on, on what condition whoever the we is uh, are in when, when, when yeah. you know, the personality emerges? That depends that on the other side as well. Well, that you too. You context yeah. at that moment? Yes. I mean, we, we, we are in a still a post-financial uh, crisis. The mm -hmm. United States mm -hmm. is also mm -hmm. in a post-financial yeah. crisis <laughs> moment. I mean, every half the dictators that I ever encountered came to power after... A after conflict, chaos, war. It, it, so there are moments when someone who can at least impose order and see what happens next is appealing. Something I have to say, the Communist Party in China still plays on hugely. Without us, it's chaos. And you, you hear that a lot from strong leaders. And I think that matters to the people. They A safe pair of hands is not 
I want to go down the pub with you, uh, better the devil you know. It's it's all of those things that I think that my interests are most likely best kept. It, it's not even left or right, uh, red or blue. It is. I look at this person and I think they probably are the better interest for my family. But I, I also think that you can have a personality in politics and not do the lying that, you know, the farage, the misinformation. So Obama is a really good example. And the whereas the sort of blank check and the the people who will say anything rather than do anything and that is all politics is at the moment it's just people saying things is i, I think that there there is room to have personality politics that is sensible and is rooted in people and obama i suppose is the best example of that but yeah the the the, the way that you come to power and who your opposition is is in theresa may didn't seem strong and stable because she didn't seem human compared with Jeremy Corbyn at the time of the last election and he didn't look as incredible as everybody might have thought he was going to be previously being as of all the stories because her credibility was lacking as well how we view leaders and policies that we like is entirely often my dad always used to say you don't vote for what you want you vote for what you don't want <laughs> That's a good point. But one of the risks of voting for personalities is that, you know, turkeys vote for Christmas. And, and I don't think Trump is going to do any good to his base in the long run. Yeah, but we so won't how forget we his base again, will we? And I don't think we should give an, uh, to, li to, to, we shouldn't infantilize voters in the way that we sometimes do. Because actually, no, Trump won't give out hope actually to the people who yeah. are wearing their hats he won't do naff all for most of them and if he, and does, he won't make america great again if, either. if he does it will be obama lagover right, that he's right. taking credit but, for but, so my but we won't forget them as policymakers again i don't think we'll ever go to sure. a, through another american election okay. where they'll be so discarded again all right but then how do we get a better balance of of policies of attracting support for policies which are really in people's interests somehow you know at the mm. expense if you like of grasping for a personality who may mm. well deceive them Rana, if you I think it is universally reflected through the exceptions that break the rule I say what the exception is in just one second that in France in Germany in the United Kingdom in the United States politicians have been having to deal with the fact that a social democratic consensus which is partly centre-right partly centre-left doesn't seem to have much to offer anymore to people who basically find that the actual result is healthcare crisis, jobs that don't have any kind of lasting, uh, uh, lasting value beyond a sort of very short uh, period, pensions which they were promised ahead of time now not being delivered and so forth. The very rare exceptions actually I think show why that is. I, th I was trying to think where are there places that actually politics still does operate on a, re a relatively kind of centrist uh, basis and actually one of them is Australia. And Australia is a country that, for good or ill, did very well in 2008. It did so under the former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, the Labour Prime Minister of the, of the time, who basically had the financial crisis appear on his doorstep, like every other leader in 2008. The Rudd government, an elected centre-left government, of a kind I think that uh, Jess would probably feel quite happy being uh, part of, managed to deal with the crisis without actually going to austerity measures. And I don't think it's coincidental that Australia managed to keep its economic uh, 
um, act together in a way that the rest of us haven't managed to do. The two, the two go together. Okay, John, I, if we are to uh, get back to a more rational choice of policies as you, as you advocate, how do we scale it? It's all very well, you know, kind of voting on whether you want a road or not a road, mm. through as, as they do in Switzerland through their village. But how do you scale that to a kind of national level policy as opposed to a kind of mosaic of local policies which may well contradict each other? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Next. Not really. Okay. But I, but no, but I do, I do have a point of view on it. <laughs> there, are two, there are two elements. One is um, asking better questions. So a friend of mine in Switzerland said he was asked the question in a local referendum as to whether taxes on whether you own a horse or not should be 18 or 19 percent. I think those kind of short-sighted, let's call them policy questions, aren't necessarily useful. Um, quest questions that are slightly, that have some vision to them, that are about what kind of future you want. We all have I think a right, I think that's what democracy is, to have that say. How you integrate them, I think, is, a, is something that I've not really seen. Maybe Switzerland is, is a good example in, in this other way, which is that you have uh, an umbrella nation, and then you have areas to the nation. That is to say that the nation abides by some general principles or, or even laws that we all can agree on, uh, or at least over a period of time can agree on. But different locations might enact them slightly differently, or might actually take a different viewpoint. And I think that's, uh, that's a system that hasn't existed before and could be possible. And the way it would be scaled is more or less, I think, through technology. There's, there's currently not a system that uses blockchain as a nation or uses these systems as a nation, but it's, th it's the 21st century. We, we, don't, we won't stop that from becoming the case. I can't see that you'd be able to reverse that kind what of... What does that look like in practice? Could well, I it, it takes most of the world's energy, I would think, to use the well blockchain, blockchain on a kind of so massive democratic... Okay. Um, uh, I'm trying to like split those two <laughs> questions. The, the energy one, uh, if, y if you... I'm not sure I've seen someone calculate the energy it takes all of the banks in the world to run banks and central banks, but we have gone and evaluated how much the blockchain costs to run. Because that way we, we can we can argue against progress. It's a way easier thing to do. If you were to actually balance the, the maths against one another, I wouldn't be surprised if it tipped the other way. Your question about how it works in practice, mm. there's a few different examples. So Iceland crowdsourced a whole constitution um, over months. Every week they, they wrote the constitution, published it. People edited it online. And they did that for weeks and weeks over six months. They came out with 70% of the country voting on that constitution and lawyers around the world saying it was a more thorough, understandable, accessible constitution than anything that had been seen before. Um, now, I know Iceland's 300,000 people. Mm -hmm. It's not 60 million. Hello. Right. It's Sheffield. But, no, but, but no, one, no one's done that before. Yep. So, so we w it's easy to, to knock down <coughs> ideas mm. simply because they've not happened. But it's happened once, and it worked great. Um, other examples are in Taiwan. They used AI, and they've, they've explicitly changed laws thanks to an AI that asks thousands and thousands of people what they think on something. And the AI is able to say what you agree and disagree on. So these, are, these examples are starting to exist simply because of the year that we're in. They couldn't have happened before. Okay. So that's a sort of managerial model, if you like, a digital managerial model of policy. What a very British conclusion. Thank you very much. And please thank the panel. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. This week, I also caught up with Robin from the How the Light Gets In team to find out the latest updates in the run-up to the world's largest music and philosophy festival. Hi, I'm Robin from the Institute of Art and Ideas and a producer of How the Light Gets In. 
I'm producing the Solo Talks programme for Hey 2019, and we've got an absolutely fascinating lineup, including John Landsman, founder of Momentum, and the infamously outspoken George Galloway. We also have Cabinet Minister Liz Truss joining us to discuss the future of Britain, and Dawn Butler, Shadow Minister for Women Inequalities, and that's not to mention our incredible scientists and philosophers, including Roger Penrose, world-renowned physicist, and world-leading philosopher Saul Kripke. We have over 200 events this year, including 80 debates and talks, in which we'll be running solo talks with the world's top thinkers, one-off courses with leading academics, and unique experiences to get to know the speakers yourselves. Tickets are now on sale, and you can go to howthelightgetsin.org to see the full programme and buy tickets. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was presented by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Jess Phillips, Tanya Brannigan, John Barnes, and Rana Mitter. Join us next week when philosopher and sociologist Renata Selekel, author of Gaga Feminism, Jack Halberstam, and director of the Institute of Philosophy, Barry C. Smith, will be examining memories and identity. Please do subscribe, tell anyone you know that might be interested in the podcast, and of course, tune in next week for more debates and interviews with the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.